Hey guys, Clay Thompson here. I need to give a shout out to my mom. She said I should read the newspaper before games to take my mind off things. It's become a pregame ritual, but it also is how I stay informed. Keeping up on local news, sports, or just about anything, I read the paper. So should you. Whether it's digital or print, it doesn't matter. Go to clayoffer.com and subscribe today. Local news delivered your way, digital or print. Stay informed on news that matters to you. Go to clayoffer.com. Brought to you by the Mercury News, East Bay Times, and Marin Independent Journal. The Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. On the phone with me, it is co-host Alan Niven. Good day, Sir Alan. Good day, Mitch. How's your day been so far? So far, it has been absolutely Wonderful. And uh, speaking of wonderful, I'm going to mention our guest that we have on this episode from the Scorpions. Sorry, from the Mighty Scorpions. We have Matthias Jabs, right? Of course, Great White toured with the Scorpions, I believe. Yes, uh, we did a a summer tour with the Scorpions uh, back in 90, I think it was. Um, And uh, it, it it actually was going brilliantly. And we had a show in Miami, and um, I remember the Scorps being on the side of the stage watching the White Ones play, and the White Ones were playing as well as they ever played. And there was a really good vibe and momentum going with the tour. Uh, And we had a week off after Miami, and um, Michael Lardy and I uh, went into do some work on some tracks and Kendall came down uh, to see what we were doing and, and play his fiddle. And uh, he went home and left Michael and I working in the studio. We got a phone call from Kendall and uh, he said he was bleeding from the mouth. I said, my God, get an ambulance. And the next time I saw Mark was the next day in an ICU, his esophagus ruptured from um, excessive drinking, and he nearly bled out. Wow. Well, I, I don't think that's ever... Was that ever known? I, I've never heard that story. Oh, you've never heard that story? No. Um, wow. And I snuck a camera into the ICU, and I took a picture of him with all the um, paraphernalia going in and out of his body and all the tubes and all the stuff he was connected up to. And... Uh, kept that photograph and when he later slipped off the wagon i drove over to his house with the photograph and showed it to him and i just didn't have to say anything i just put the photograph in front of him and said look is that close from going well you know if that is what has helped him stay clean and sober for the last uh, how many years has he been sober do it do we know offhand um currently i think it um he's got to be over 15 years yep um he slipped a couple of times early on but that was the moment that was the moment where it came home to him that he needed to stop drinking the way he was drinking well yeah yeah yeah, absolutely by the way speaking of of great white you of course uh, penned that letter to to the band uh, recently and i got a call from the former singer jack russell who confided in me that he agreed with everything you said. He said that Alan Niven made excellent, excellent points. 
And I mentioned to him, I said, well, did you see he even gave you a compliment and said that you're the only voice? And he was like, yeah. And I thank him for that. So so that was uh, interesting. Well, that, is, that is interesting. I haven't heard from Jack for a while. There is um, uh, in the archives a uh, an article in Classic Rock, um, which describes that last meeting. But with Jack, I really hope his health is better. I hope his health is as good as it can be. And I have to say that as unfortunate as some of the, the videos we've seen in the past, consistently these days, I hear that Jack is actually really bringing it as best he can live. And I say well done to him. Yeah, yeah, he re- he really is, and and of course he's got Tony in the band, and and Tony's just this great talent, as you know, and and, and I think the band's doing great. And anyway, I, I love both versions. The more the merrier for me. Uh, just quickly back to the Scorpions. What was what was your take on on the guitarist changing situation? Are you more sort of an, an Uli John Roth guy? Are you more a Matthias guy, or do they both serve their purpose for the band at at their times or in their eras, if you prefer? I, I think I'd agree with you that there's a sense of what was appropriate in a certain era worked. Uh, but for me personally, uh, I really connected to the Scorpions on an album called Love Drive. And there were songs like Anybody There that had a, a slightly reggae take on it, which I thought was really inventive and clever and worked, even in a, a heavy song. And I thought that on Love Drive that they took a big step forward in their composing and in their songwriting. Um, And in many respects, while a lot of people would probably say Blackout, for me, I think my favorite Scorpions album is Love Drive. And that's when I fell in love with them. Uh, Let me think about that. Um, Hmm. Hmm. You know, always somewhere. Is there anybody there? Love drive, holiday, can't get enough. That's those. Those are tough. I've always been very, very partial. In fact, not to blackout, but to taken by force. I've mm-hmm. always thought that taken by force was brilliant. With um, uh, uh, what's that song? And your light and uh, sails of Quran, and he's a woman. She's a, you know. I, I think your light is one of the greatest Scorpion songs ever recorded. And, um, yeah, I just, I, I love that song. And every time I, I speak to Uli, I go, hey, next time you come to Montreal or Ottawa or anywhere, can you put that in? And he's like, oh, it's really difficult to put in live set. It, it doesn't, and it's like, oh, just make an effort. <laughs> come on, make an effort. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree that that, that is a, a really magical track. But in terms of connecting to a whole album and connecting to the vibe of the band as it was at that moment, that's when I went, ooh. Now this band are really getting interesting to me. Uh, well, and I think, and that's when, and that's when Matthias joined the band um, was, and you know, for the, for the Love Drive album. Um, so it's kind of curious. Well, listen, their their success with Matthias is undeniable. I mean, you look at yes. everything that came after, from Animal Magnetism to Blackout to. Um, uh, crazy world, anything, any era, whether it's 80s or 90s, they were on an upward, 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 upward spiral, and I'm not sure they could have done that with Uli. Not because Uli's not a great guitar player, not because he's not a great guy, but he wasn't into making commercial records, and I think in the studio it would always have been that give and take of, no, we're not going to do a ballad, no, we're not going to... 
not to say that he's difficult or anything, but I don't think they would have written songs like Rock You Like a Hurricane with Uli in the band. I, you know, I, I, no, they, no, they wouldn't have. Um, and the other thing, of course, is uh, you know, I think Dieter Dirks, their producer, um, hit a peak then too. Uh, Dieter's a very interesting character. He, uh, he amassed a fortune by covering Beatles songs um, when they were released and releasing them himself in Germany. And because of the copyright laws, then he got paid the composer's royalty as well. So he did rather well. Um, but the thing for me about the Scorps is as, as that progress was made, um, they definitely became the absolutely relentless and consistent machine. Um, you could count on their live performance being of a particular standard every night. Um, it's, it's interesting because, you know, perhaps to illustrate this, I might suggest that they played a show, whereas, and let me give you a local example. Um, somebody like Frank Marino gives a concert, and one is really disciplined and absolutely reliable, and the other one, you're not quite sure where it might go at some point because there's an element of the unpredictable to it. But the Scorps, and especially seeing them night after night, they were just absolutely um, a machine. And, and they still are. And and what I like about the Scorps, and by the way, the reason I was speaking to Matthias is that they're on tour. They're doing a quick U.S. run. Uh, last year, they were on tour with Megadeth. Klaus got sick. They had to cancel the show. So they're coming back to do these shows. Megadeth can't join them. So they've got Queensryche on the road. But just quickly on the shows, what I like about what they do is... You know, there's the diehard fan that wants to hear Steam Rock Fever or Top of the Bill or something. And, of course, you can't really just put an entire song like that in a set list because it's going to slow it down if you're, if you're just a casual fan. So they do these medleys, and they've done them for the last 10, 20 years where they've done medleys of um, the, the slow songs or now they're doing the Top of the Bill and uh, Speedy's Coming and and, and I love the fact that they do that because it, it gives that diehard fan that, that, that little sort of five-minute medley where you get to hear bits of four or five songs and you go, ah, thank you. And, and they're still delivering at such a high level. It is unbelievable that folks that technically have celebrated a 50th anniversary are, are still doing this at such a high, high level. It's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's, it's truly unbelievable. Well – of course, for me personally, I also love to hear um, Klaus go, California! <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's... Yeah. The, I mean, it's extraordinary, but that's become a trademark too. Yeah, well, you know, it's like those Paul Stanley yelps. Anyway, the, yeah. I, you know, let me tell you who else is on the show. We have also got uh, Glenn Hughes. He is on the classic Deep Purple Live tour, and we'll, we'll, we'll save our talk up about Glenn when we get to him in a second, and we're going to round out the show today with Tower of Power and uh, Emilio Castillo, who I guess is the uh, the leader of the band, of course, Tower of Power. You've seen him. You've heard him. They've been on Sammy Hagar Records. They've been on Aerosmith Records, Huey Lewis Records. They've even been on Exodus. I mean, they've been on thrash metal records. They are the, 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 what do we call them? A brass section? Are they a brass section? Is that, is that the proper word for it? I guess. 
I think it's fair to describe them as a, as a, a brass section. Although, of course, in their own right, and we should get into this later, in their own right, um, there was a really smooth and creamy balance between the brass and the song and the guitars in you know the, the tracks that were successful under their own name. And, and by the way, another band who is celebrating 50 years, you know, and, um, and I have an interview coming up for you in a couple of weeks with Mix Box of Uriah Heep, and they're doing their 50th anniversary. There's, there's a lot of 50th anniversaries going on, so we'll get to that. But uh, just quickly before we get to Matthias, let us uh, remind you that the Dead Daisies are on tour with Hookers and Blow, and the band, of course, features Doug Aldrich, formerly of Whitesnake and Dio, John Karabi of Motley Crue and The Scream, Marco Mendoza, spent some time with Thin Lizzy, gotta love that, Whitesnake, of course, Dean Castronovo, Bad English Journey, and the trusted leader, David Lowey, the band's the first two weeks are in the can, but August 28th, they are in New York at the Highland Ballroom, Warrendale, PA at Jurgles on the 29th, Cincinnati, Ohio on the 30th. And of course, you can head over to deaddaisies.com to get all the remaining tour dates. And let us not forget Hookers and Blow. That is Robbie Crane of Black Star Riders, formerly of Rat, and Dizzy Reed of Guns N' Roses fame. Um, by the way, Focus and Blow, is, is, is that their version of merchandise? Is that for the audience or the Hookers and Blow for the uh, band? I think it's a bit of both, actually. I think it's Hookers <laughs> and Blow on tour with actual Hookers and Blow. It's, it's yeah. a great, great uh, concept. Uh, just quickly also, the Dead Daisies' new album is Burn It Down, which came out in April. Do check that out. But uh, uh, by the way, was Dizzy Reed part of the band when you were still with Guns N' Roses, or did he come in just, just after? He came in just before. Just before. So, so you yeah. know Dizzy then. You, you've spoken yeah. to Dizzy. Okay. Well, yeah. there you go. So Dizzy would, Dizzy would come over to the office and sit on the couch and look in the cupboard to see if there were any beers there. Was he looking for hookers and blow too at the time? Just <laughs> uh, the band Me. didn't have to look very hard for hookers and blow in those days. They tended to come to them rather quickly and easily, and in many cases too quickly and too easily. Right. And of course, uh, if you head over to deaddaisies.com, it'll be just as easy to find out where the Dead Daisies are and where the Hookers and Blow are. And with that, let us get over to the one and only Matthias Jabs from The Mighty Scorpions, one of my faves. Here's Matthias for you. Hey, pleasure. Hello. To... Hello, Matthias. Pleasure Hi. to speak with you. It's, it's uh, always a, a pleasure when you speak to uh, one of the bands that you love, and The Scorpions is one of those bands that I love, so... There you go. Oh, great. Good news. Good I'm news. Here's Matthias. Yes. So let's talk quickly about the upcoming run of U.S. dates. We know that, of course, last year you were out with Megadeth, and Klaus needed some time off the road to get his <coughs> throat going. Uh, but now you're coming back out with the Queensryche. So tell me about these dates. And at some point, do we see a longer list of U.S. and Canadian dates, a fuller tour? Absolutely. I mean, the idea is just this time is just to play the shows we couldn't play last year. And uh, so it's not with Megadeth this time because they have a different schedule. So we go out with Queensryche again, and that worked very well the last time we did it a couple of years ago. Nice guys. They have a new album out, which also makes sense. And um, so we, we play those five shows we couldn't play last year, and we added two more shows, Lake Tahoe and Irvine. 
uh, in California. And uh, so this is it for this year, just to complete the tour. Because, you know, we always feel bad if we have to cancel. It's nobody's fault. You know, if the singer gets a bad throat infection, then it's nothing he can do. And uh, But, you know, we, we want to complete the tour and play for the fans in California, Arizona, Texas, and Florida, which we had to miss out last year. And uh, that makes us feel better. And uh, then we have plans for next year. And uh, then I'm sure we will play a more extensive tour in the States next year. Yeah, I look forward to it. Now, of course, uh, in, the, in the last couple of years, you've added more to heads. Mickey D on drums. Talk to me a little bit about the addition of Mickey and what does he add to the band? I mean, he, he you know, Motorhead was one of these great, great bands, full metal. What does he bring to the Scorpions? I mean, Mickey is um, a very nice guy to begin with. He fits right in on a personal level, but also on a musical level. He's a great rock drummer and um, he's capable of doing other things as well. He's a real good drummer, and uh, he's a powerhouse, so he adds a lot of energy, and he's very consistent, and uh, so it gives us, uh, you know, the extra little ounce of energy, which is great, and it feels good, and uh, everybody's really happy with him, and uh, he's with the band now for almost two years, two, no, two and a half years even, and, uh, you know, we've done some great shows and, uh, yeah, he's a good guy, you know, very positive and, uh, very funny and entertaining too. So, you know, we spend a lot of time in a small plane together and it's, you know, he talks too much, I must say, but <laughs> it's, it's always funny. Yeah. And, and I appreciate the fact that he talks because the, the few times I've interviewed him, it's, it, I just have to ask one question and you sit back and let it go. Um, but last exactly. year, right, right. But at the end of last year, you released Born to Touch Your Feelings, Best of Rock Ballads that included three new songs, Follow Your Heart, Melrose Avenue and Always Be With You. Uh, great songs, by the way. Mickey D plays on those. Talk to me about having him play on those. But you know, as a fan, you, you think Motorhead, you think heavy metal, and then you've got these three ballads. Do you plan on utilizing him to make a Scorpions album that just is a rock album with those drums going? I mean, the um, the ballad compilation album is, as you might have guessed, is a typical record company idea. And, uh, you know, we did it and only under the, the condition that we uh, could like record three new songs to make it worthwhile for the fans, because most of these songs have been released before. And we never really feel great about that, that, you know, you, you get the same material once again in a different mix. Um, so, but OK, this is what we had to do quickly while touring. Uh, the new songs came out good. But as you said, you know, they are more balladesque. And what we have to do is we are, you know, at the moment we are talking about it, you know, producers come to us, record companies come to us and to record songs and next year. This year we are busy touring, but next year and it like, you know, rock songs with Mickey, you know, some proper stuff. Yeah. And I, and I look forward to that. So, um, the band has never released a, a box set. And of course, Return to Forever that came out a few years ago had some songs that were sitting around in the vaults for a while that you refurbished and released. Um, do you see yourself releasing a box set at any point? And are there other gems in the vault that you can dig into and, and put together a great compilation for fans? Actually, 
there is something similar. It's not like a box set, but uh, was it last year? I think it was two years ago that uh, BMG uh, here from Germany, they bought the rights for all the old uh, recordings, like starting uh, Laugh Drive or even stuff from the 70s, bought the entire catalog and were releasing them uh, plus as a special edition with like jam session, unfinished uh, songs, uh, some of them were just instrumental because there were no lyrics and no vocals yet, and um, released them. So they always like were in um, like in sync with the album. So like demos from the same uh, recording session for the same album. And so we always had you know leftovers or unfinished material. If you think about that, uh, in the vinyl days, some of these albums have like eight songs eight or nine at the most. And uh, so it's not that much. Now with the CD days, we are all used to 15, 16 songs. So back then we wrote maybe 20, put eight out, maybe an extra one is a, is a B-side on a single, as it was like happening back then. And uh, so obviously there's a lot of stuff that was never quite finished. And so they remixed them or they mastered them and left them the way they were. And so right. that was actually, that's on the market without being a box set, though. Right. Those are the 50th anniversary deluxe reissues. I yes, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. I didn't correct. know what they were called. That's yeah. what they were called. I bought them all. I counted 81 unreleased songs. And, of course, Pledge Music is doing a campaign right now to see them re-released, uh, I think, in September of this year. There's going to be a, a, a sort of a, a renouveau of those uh, great stuff. Now, we are speaking today on the 40th anniversary of Tokyo Tapes. Um, I know you didn't play on that, but talk to me about that time in the band where Uli was leaving the band and you were coming in. And, and, and what was it like for you to, to, to take over from Uli and then get on to Love Drive? Do you come in thinking, okay, I need to play like him? Or do you come in thinking, no, I, I'm going to be me and I'm going to show these guys what they can do and talk to me about that time in your career and what it was like with the band transitioning and you coming in. Yeah. I mean, I, I know Uli very well. We, um, we are from the same little town outside of Hanover and I went to school with his younger brother and we, we started playing guitar together, the younger brother and me. And, um, Uli is not that much older, one and a half years older, I think. And um, so we knew each other before he ever joined the Scorpions. And so I didn't know that he was going to leave them. I found out later that uh, they asked him to go to Japan and record uh, Tokyo tapes uh, together as like under that condition, so to speak. They wanted, <laughs> uh, wanted to let him go. And so he said, okay, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. It's going to be the last thing I'm going to do with the Scorpions. And then, like months later, I heard the rumor that they were looking for a new guitar player. And then Rudolf called me and asked me if I was going to like jam with them. So I said, yeah, why not? And uh, so I went to the rehearsal room. We played a couple of songs. And then I found out that they've been to London before uh, for a couple of days. Uh, rehearsing and auditioning um, uh, or auditioning like 130 to 140 guitar players. Nobody knows that exactly. And uh, so I didn't know. I just thought, okay, we are jamming. 
And uh, then like 10 days later, they said, called me and said, okay, if you like, you're the new guy. And of course, we played a couple of shows later and I had to learn the whole set of songs, uh, the, the Uli stuff. And, uh, you know, so I was quite familiar with the songs, so it wasn't too hard. And uh, so we played a couple of songs, all old material. And then in the fall of 1978, we went to the studio to record the Laugh Rife uh, material. And um, of course, I... You know, I played like Uli when uh, we played the old stuff, but I played like myself when we recorded new stuff. So, and obviously, you know, when Lovecraft came out, there was a whole new um, sound impression of the from the Scorpions because it sounds definitely different than the '70s material before. Yeah, it really does. Um, fast forward into the 1980s. There are, there are two things to me that I think contributed a lot to your success. First off, uh, with the Blackout album, were the associated videos with it and MTV. And then after that, it was the band's incredible use of power ballads and coming up with Send Me an Angel and Winds of Change. And of course, now we were just talking about the ballads compilation. Um, talk to me about ballads and power ballads and were they a main success for the Scorpions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, we always uh, like paid attention to the the right dynamics on each and every album that we have like enough rock songs and uh, you know maybe two ballads, uh, so that you know that that everything is in the right balance. But um, uh, some of the songs, especially Still Loving You, um, you know, created a real big hype in here, some of the um, European countries, especially France, where they talk about a baby boom, and it's almost like the national anthem to them. And But also in Asian countries, uh, Still Loving You is like the most popular song. And we had a couple of ballads before, like Holiday from Love Drive or Always Somewhere, which also you know, are very popular among the Scorpions fans, and we played them for years and years in the shows. Um, later on with Send Me an Angel and Wind of Change, we had two real like smash hits, uh, especially Wind of Change is one of the the most selling single songs of all times, I guess. And um, they play a major role, even though with Wind of Change, we all of a sudden attracted like mainstream people, and when they came to the shows, you know, we played two hours of hard rock and they had to sit through this and they were waiting for the only song they knew, I guess, Wind of Change. And um, we played that in the encore. Uh, so that was a bit strange. Um, but, um, you know, meanwhile, um, I think, you know, it's accepted that the Scorpions, you know, are known for their strong ballads, but it's only a part of what we do. It, it really is only a part of what we do. Um, recently, Foreigner has had a reunion show with a lot of the previous members. Back in 2006 in Wacken, you had a show where you included Uli and Michael and Herman, uh, not Francis, mind you. Uh, talk to me about the possibility of, is there any possibility that the Scorpions might do future shows like that where you'll bring out everybody and sort of celebrate the entire career of the band? Yeah, that would be nice. Um, you know, I don't mind, but we, I think it was it last year for the 50th anniversary tour, which started two years ago. Um, 
we we had the same thought. But then it turned out that uh, Uli was very busy. Um, you know, he's touring a lot lately. And uh, Michael was busy. He played for some time together with uh, Herman and Francis. And uh, so it wasn't so easy to come together for a show, a special show. It doesn't make sense to, like, you know, play some show in south of France now. You're, you're looking for, like, one of the capitals and you want or a big festival like Wacken or somewhere else uh, to really make it very attractive. But that never really came together. I don't know if we can do it in the future, maybe next year, this year, I doubt it. Because we go to, after the States, we go to Australia, New Zealand, and China. And that's going to be too complicated, I guess, and too far away. But uh, maybe, you know, next year when we come back to the States, it's always a possibility. Yeah, and that would be great. Um, talk to me about this, the, the continued touring, because, of course, we all know about the, the farewell tour. And you, you said, well, no, we're, we're not going to stop. That's just silly. So you kept going. And, and thank you for doing that. But your schedule has been insane. I mean, you're you're just everywhere. I think you're going to Lebanon, if I'm not mistaken. It just it just never yeah, ends. You're right, yeah. right? Um, and talk to me also about you know as you get older and as we all get older, why not dial it back a bit? Why keep working at such an incredible rate? I think from our point of view, we already cut back. Um, Two reasons, um, or two explanations. Um, we don't play that many shows anymore. We still play a lot of countries. Um, we used to play a hundred shows in the States only at those touring uh, days, uh, Blackout, Love at First Thing, Crazy World. We played nine months just in the States for that tour. Um, but meanwhile, you know, we play maybe six weeks and uh, we play maybe 60 shows and not 140 shows per year or even 150. Um, but of course, we are on tour for a long time because of all the distances. We play like, you know, various continents and uh, we just finished the summer tour and we've been everywhere from Spain, Portugal to Israel and, and Greece and Switzerland, Italy and, and France and Germany and and England and you know so it's a lot of traveling but we learned from um, last year's mistake we shouldn't have played back-to-back uh, -back shows you know for a singer that's just killing and uh, most of the older bands you know they say we don't we can't do it anymore because you need a day to recover after two hours of you know singing and high pitch and you know, screaming and uh, so that works much better we didn't have any problems so far this year and you know now we have to you know complete the tour which we couldn't finish last year just because it was like a show you know la great show and next day phoenix you know it's like an overnight of eight hours and if you have if you have a little infection in your throat that's the last thing you need. You need a day to recover. And so from now on, we don't play back-to-back -back shows anymore. And yeah, that helps. It does help. And a lot of bands do that. If you look at Aerosmith and stuff, they'll only do like three yes, shows right. a week. Yeah, right? exactly. They'll only do like three shows a week. Um, you know, you had those 50, 50th anniversary reissues last year or two years ago. And, and of course, I bought them all because that's what I do. Um <laughs> Talk to me about the popularity of the band, because a lot of bands come in and, you know, they have one song, one hit wonder, out they go, two years, out they go, three years, out they go. What is it about the band and the music that has endured for 50 years and the fact that you can go out and have Megadeth open for you and then Queensryche open for you? And 
What is it about the Scorpions that has kept you interesting and fan interest uh, for for fifty years? I mean, it's 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 very very unique. Yes, it is. It's not too many bands who can say they are together for fifty years. I mean, for me, it's only forty years, but still, that's a long time. Um, I think part of it is that the song material uh, has the quality to uh, live on for a long, long time. You know, it's not those, you know, fashionable songs that have a, like the, the touch of the time when they were released. You know, you can tell some of the songs uh, from the 80s bands who were very su- successful in the 80s. Today, mm, you know, it's just nothing you want to really hear. Um, then again, there are some bands, you know, Led Zeppelin, first of all, you can listen to them today and they sound uh, still amazing. Um, I would say it's because we, we have the song material, the quality, and we have, uh, I don't know, people, the fans like to identify uh, with this band from around the world. And we've been constantly touring and constantly putting new albums out that kept us always in the face of you know people's interest and uh, uh, it has to do with that i'm sure and um, i don't know that's uh, the the most surprising thing is to me that we have so many young fans lately maybe not as much in the states as um in uh, like south america brazil mexico meanwhile in all of europe and in asia and our Facebook members are like out of seven and a half million. I think it's like the survey says 80% of those people are between 18 and 28. And that is for a band that celebrates 50 years plus. That's quite amazing. It really is a, a great accomplishment. And, and I know we're running out of time, so I'll just quickly finish on this. Uh, James Kotak is a personal friend of mine. He, of course, was in the band for many years. He had his difficulties um just quickly what what did james bring to the band and was it a difficult decision to to move on and get mickey uh and 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 i i love mickey in the band by the way but what what just talk to me a little bit about that situation and was it was it a hard thing after i guess 14 or 15 years to say james i mean you know james was a real good friend he still is Yes. And uh, but we couldn't continue with him. You know, we gave him all the chances and 10 more. And uh, it was something that developed over the years, Um, you know, the drinking habit. And, um, you know, there was it came in waves. Sometimes it was good for four weeks and then, you know, it was drama. And, you know, when it's if you know him, you know what that's like. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah, and you know, then if it affects the show, then you have to go, mm, you know, because our drum riser goes up like uh, like 21 feet or 24 feet sometimes if the venue allows it. And, you know, the production manager or stage manager goes, I can't have him go up there. It's too risky. You know, if you can't really walk the stairs, uh, down the stairs straight, uh, you can't have that. So that affects your intro of the show, and that's not good. That's not professional. And but you know we are helping him. We were sending him to Antigua. We paid for it and we did everything we could because we are extremely loyal. You know, it's it's always hard if you work with somebody for almost twenty years to say, okay, you got to go. We rather do the opposite and try to to keep him and help him. But um, we we reached a point, or he reached a point where it was just not worth it. You know, it's like 
after three months or four months even, they gave him an extra month in Antigua, the rehab. You know, he come back home, we start again, and, you know, he's, he's, he can't even talk to him. So we had to make that decision. We had Mickey on the road, um, so he didn't notice. So I rehearsed with him and Pavel in the afternoon, just as a backup. That was the original plan. But then, you know, there was no way we could continue with James, so we started with Mickey. Yeah, and I have to say, as both a fan and a friend of James, I think this was the right decision. I think he needs to stay home and, and, and get get healthy, and having Mickey D in the Scorpions is just this crazy idea that is just so perfect, and well well done for choosing him, and uh, thank you for today. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, same here. Thank you, and um, yeah, have a wonderful day, and it was good talking to you. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye now. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And a big thank you to uh, Matthias, of course, the Scorpions on tour now with the Queensryche. What a great bill. What a great band. Uh, and I do need more new Scorpions music. I'm not ready to just live on the past albums, whether or not Love Drive or Taken by Force or Blackout's the best album. doesn't matter. I still need more. Right, Alan? We always need more new music. I am always open to a well-written and brilliantly performed great song. Yeah, and you know what? A lot of these heritage acts or classic acts or whatever you want to call them, when they were writing back in the day, they were writing for the record company and for the AOR guy and for the the single and the da-da-da-da-da. Now they can just go and be who they want to be. There's not that pressure to deliver a song that is going to be top 10 or going to be suitable for, you know, MTV or that's going to pass the PMRCs, right? I mean, there is a certain freedom these days for a lot of these bands to write the way they want to write. I I think, Mitch, that you have an excellent perception that you formed there. And I thoroughly agree with you. And when Glenn came out with Black Country Communion, um, I got to tell you, when I did first casually listened i got really excited because they sounded terrific i thought they had uh, a sonic approach that was absolutely dead on for him and refreshing the old school but of the moment um the thing that was a bit sad about uh, black country was they sounded fantastic but i don't think they spent enough time on their composition. I got a feeling that their producer kind of rushed them through and they didn't spend enough time on pre-production. Um, and I have to say that, you know, I got really, really excited about it. And then it was like, gosh, where's, where's the killer song? Um, but Glenn, Glenn is one of those incredible and magic rock and roll voices. Um, you know, obviously he's had a, an extraordinary career going through certain bands and also one of those interesting singers who always managed to shoot themselves in the foot with their with their cocaine use and their drug use Mm. um i don't know if you remember there was an album called um hugh thrall yep with with, uh, frankie benelli on drums yeah and what a brilliant record that was and i remember back in the day all of us in in south bay of l.a listening to this record and going, oh my God, that's the bar now. 
they've just thrown down the gauntlet. It was a wonderful, wonderful record. And I think, and I could be off here, um, but I'm not sure that they even toured behind it. And if they did, it was only a handful of dates. And that is a great lost classic. So if anybody's into Glenn, you have to get a copy of the Hughes Thrall record. Yeah, and and, and I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was re-released not too long ago with like bonus tracks or something like that. And, and since you mentioned their their tours, let me just quickly see here. Yes, here they are. Uh, Hughes Thrall, they, they did a whole run in 1982, actually. They did uh, a whole run. How many dates? So let me see here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Go over to page two or ten, eleven. Wow, eleven. Ha! (laughs) Well, I rest. I rest rest my case. I mean, we used to back in the day. We used to consider a tour only a tour if you had two birthdays on it. You know, you had to be out there for over a year to really get behind your record. And they did 12 dates behind a brilliant record. That is such a shame. Well, listen, Lou Graham and Vivian Campbell did an album in 92, I think, called Shadow King, which was absolutely fantastic. It was like a hard rock foreigner album, if you want. And they managed to do one show. Oh! Now, of course, of course... One show in Canada using the American standard is is equal to a Canadian tour, but for the rest of us, <laughs> we played Toronto. We did a Canadian tour. No, no you no. have to play Vancouver as well. Right? Yes, and and well, to be a real Canadian tour, you have to go like to Thunder Bay. Otherwise, you're just hitting those those two or three cities. But uh, by the way, yeah, for folks wondering, yes, we did transition into talking about Glenn Hughes. He is, of course, on the road with Glenn Hughes doing the classic Deep Purple Songs Live, which I think is a brilliant idea. He's, of course, going to come up to Canada with that in April of 2019. But it's going to be so good to hear these songs perform live, because as you know, and as you know, I guess, Alan, Ian Gillen refuses to sing those songs from Stormbringer and the songs from uh, what's the other one that taste the band or what to come with the band or whatever it was called and uh, right. burn. And right. it's like, well, really you don't want to sing burn well, because yeah. somebody else did it like, you know, mm-hmm. but okay. So David Coverdale, no, would, would Glenn, Glenn to my passing knowledge is uh, in really good shape these days and I would say that that is a definite go-to show. That's really one that would be worth going to, to hear Glenn in good shape singing all that Deep Purple material. Yeah, it really would be. And of course, the album I was uh, stumbling on is called Come Taste the Band. But uh, yeah. I was just going to say David Coverdale did the Purple Tour a couple of years back where he did some of the Purple stuff. And, and, and with White Snake, he had continued doing Mistreated and some of those but uh, it's the, sort of the first time, really, that Glenn's going to dig into it and, and do a full, full set of Only Purple, and it's going to be spectacular. It is absolutely going to be spectacular. The tour, of course, started August 25th in Westbury, New York, but uh, on August 28th, Stone Pony in Ashbury Park. Now, that is a famous, famous, famous club. It runs through September, and then, of course, there is going to be that Canadian run in April and other territories coming up just an absolute go-to show and hopefully hopefully it will lead to a live album or a live dvd i know he's doing a documentary about this tour which if done well and i'm sure it will be 
will be fascinating to see these songs come together and the fans' reaction, and I'm very much looking forward to that. So uh, shall we get over to Mr. Hughes? Let's go and see what Glenn has got to say for himself. Yes, uh, so here he is. Without further ado, the one, the only, one of the voice, I guess, right? It's the voice of metal or the voice of rock. Which one is he? Uh, he's one of. He definitely is up there in my, uh, you know, top list of singers. He, he he's got one of those tones that is absolutely magical. I mean, you've got Coverdale, who's Mr. Honeythroat, uh, Jack Russell, you know, Robert Plant, uh, and of course uh, Paul Rogers, but. I would think of Glenn in company with those people. Yeah, I would too. And uh, just before we get to Glenn, let me just quickly remind you about Indeed.com. When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. With Indeed, post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, and then zero in on qualified candidates. And when you need to hire fast, accelerate your results with sponsored jobs. New users can try for free when you sign up at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. And of course, speaking of quality standards, there is no standard greater than the Glenn Hughes standard of quality. And here he is, folks, the one, the only Glenn Hughes. We are speaking with singer and bassist Glenn Hughes. Glenn, always, always a great, great pleasure to talk to you. Reciprocated, young man. It's a, it's a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Yes, thank you. And lots of exciting stuff uh, going on. First of all, we've got the uh, classic Deep Purple Live tour. You've you've brought it overseas, but now you're bringing it back here to North America. Uh, more specifically, yeah. yeah, the U.S. and hopefully, by the way, for for your Canadian brethren, hopefully at some point oh, we will yeah. see you. Good. Yeah. So let, you let's touch base on that. We yeah. Are, you know, obviously, yeah, I'm starting next week in in, in Long Island and Westbury Theatre, but a little bit of an exclusive for you, Mitch. Uh, we are booking the second leg now. My agent is booking part two in April, where. I believe five or six Canadian shows will happen next April. How about that? That's great. And that's great. And I like to hear five or six, because normally when you say Canadian tour, people mean, I played Vancouver, <laughs> I, play, I played Toronto. That, that's, that's my Canadian tour. So Right. So th- this will be good. So I, I, spoke to my agent, I spoke to my agent about it two weeks ago, and he did mention the numbers five or six. And, and you know, look, look, I been wanting to come there for quite some time. I have played a few shows up there, of course, but I have not done enough. And I really feel that what I'm doing with Glenn Hughes Performance Classic Deep Purple, I will do the business in Canada. Oh, it's going to do great business up here. So so let's talk about this tour and, and putting it together and the thought behind it. Because, you know, a couple of years back, David Coverdale came out with the Purple album. And I thought, right. you know... That's pretty brilliant. That that's kind of cool. And then he did the tour, and there was a live albums, and here you are doing it as well. I'm like, yeah, that is that's bloody brilliant. So so talk to me. First of all, were you inspired at all by what David did, or was this something that you've always wanted to do and said, okay, now is the time? This is like off the top of my head, right? So David and I are very close, and we pretty we pretty much share everything with each other. And I was doing a show. At Wembley, Marshall's 50th or some some event at Wembley, 
two or three years ago. And Ross Halson, you know, the photographer said to me, Hi, oh, Yusey, have you heard David's version of Burn? I said, excuse me? Yeah, he's done a whole legacy of Deep Purple songs. I'm going, he says, what? He didn't tell me. So, <laughs> of course, I had a bit of a chuckle. And David felt uh, he, he didn't want to share it with me, but he, he, went, a, he, went, a, he went and did a record doing these interpretations of the songs that uh, we, we wrote and architect together back in all the good old years. And, of course, you know, um, it wasn't supposed to be a damn secret, but it must have been. So you've got, let's, Mitch, to be clear, you've got the current Deep Purple going out there, playing the music they've been doing forever. You've had David doing the White Snake slash Purple tour. And then... You've got me doing this, and it's there's no competition. There's nobody out. There's no none of that going down. Let me just tell you what happened, Mitch. About eighteen months ago, I was doing a resonate tour in Europe, and promoters were contacting my office, asking me if I would be interested in putting something together, aligning with classic Deep Purple songs, a complete show, a two-hour maybe a two-hour-plus show production show, a bigger show, not a club show, more of a theaters and what have you. And it took three or four months to think about it. Was I ready to do that, Mitch? Was I ready to go back? Having made a great album resonate, Black Country Communion were coming back with number four. Was I ready to put everything aside? Because this, what I'm about to tell you, the news performance classic Deep Purple Live is not a small tour. It's a two-year tour. We're about nine months into it. So the question is, no, I didn't know about David doing it. He sent me the album. I thought it was, was interesting. What I'm doing is, is I'm doing live, Mitch. I'm, I'm not doing the studio versions of these songs. I'm doing versions. I've got audio files. I've got video footage. I've got files from the 70s of what we were doing back in the day rather than making pretty sterile version of the song. Same melodies, same lyrics, of course, but maybe some aggression, some angst, a little rawness. I don't want this to be tied up in a pink bow. Deep Purple is not that kind of band. Well, the thing what I'm doing with this thing is definitely not that. It's more of a, no expectations, brother. I'm coming into your town and I'm going to give it everything I got. And um, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, and and I'm looking forward to it uh, as well. Now, you mentioned earlier this year that you were probably going to make a documentary of the current world tour of this Deep Purple thing. Uh, is that still the plan? And and sort of what kind of documentary are we looking at? More based on the songs and the performance, or more based on sort of getting up in the morning and figuring out if you can do this or not, or you know what what are we expecting if that's sort of still on the radar? Well, I'll tell you what you just you just nailed it there. Look, uh, uh, of course I'm going to be filming. You know we spoke about this, but what's become more apparent on the front burner these days, as as you know well enough now, Mitch, people are dropping like flies where they're disappearing and. God bless them, they're passing away from all kinds of what have you. We think, my team thinks it's important now to document Glenn, if you will, <laughs> on a daily basis as far as the way I go about my life, uh, about what I do 
and, and stuff and what I try and give back to people. Um, like kind of what I did in my book, I told the real deal. And, and I think it's time now to start filming stuff and, and, and putting something together for a documentary purpose. And um, along with that will possibly come the recording of a show or all shows. Well, it, it can't just be a show. You, you've got to you've got to get a, a couple of shows out there. I, oh, yeah. I, I, I oh, for yeah. one, yeah. have 30 bucks or 20 bucks or whatever it's going to cost ready to go to let to buy that. So, no, no, it's, it's got to happen. Uh, and by the way, I think I might, well, might be one of the only ones who still buys music. I, I love supporting my artists. Uh, that's fantastic. Look, I get offers all the time. I've got uh, two big shows in November in, in Moscow, really big events for me that the company want to film it. I'm not sure if I want to do that. I, the, the, the whole thing about me recording live songs I've recorded decades ago has got to be in the spirit of where I want it to be and what I want it to sound like. And I want to spend a little bit more time touring before I get into that. But I am filming the B-roll stuff. You know what I'm talking about? I'm filming the back right. stuff. But I am getting offers to do filmings. It's just that I really like to own all that stuff in this time of my life. But I think, you know, it wouldn't be a bad thing for me to to rip, her these, rip some of these songs out again. I think it would be an interesting scenario for the diehard Deep Purple fans that want to hear, Mitch, want to hear songs that they may not hear from any other artist at this time. I think David may have finished playing his category of Deep Purple material. I'm not saying he is or he isn't, and I only want to wish him the very best. But me playing this particular show, is a two-hour-long show, and it's devoted completely to classic Deep Purple songs. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to that. Now, uh, you mentioned two things there uh, that I want to follow up on, uh, playing the songs and also people passing. Now, we are recording this on August 16th, we have just found out that Aretha Franklin has passed away. Just yes. from a from a musical perspective and a cultural perspective, what did she mean to you? Because she she's she she she's not just she she crosses boundaries. I mean, I'm a metal guy and I love her. So, uh, what did she mean to know, you, yeah. real quick? Well, um, yeah, I, I, it's a very very important question to answer. In 1965, my girlfriend's brother, who was three years older than I, ran an all-night discotheque in the West Midlands, and I was just a pre-teenager, and I would fetch his coffees during the evening or Diet Cokes or whatever you and he would only play music from Detroit, and he would play gospel music, uh, you know, from Al Green and, and Miss Aretha Franklin. When I heard her voice, I was always, I was always fascinated by Stevie Wonder, as you know, but the only female voice of her generation at that time was Aretha's voice because it was like unreal, wasn't it? Like there's no one else of that caliber. So when I started to listen to black American women, who I still love dearly, as you know, it was her voice that spoke to me. You know I'm a, an R&B aficionado. Yep, absolutely. You cross R&B and you throw... If you throw Glenn Hughes in a big pot of soup, you know there's a guy that's been listening to R&B and there's a guy that's been listening to rock music. You, you stir that up, and that's what you get out of 
me is that you get that gumbo is uh, is Glenn Hughes and, and Rita was the first woman that 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 completely raised the hair on the back of my neck, and she did it for years and years and decades, and she will be remembered like no other R&B gospel singer. You know, she will be remembered fiercely, and God bless her and rest in such. She's a wonderful, wonderful human being. Oh yeah, uh, I, I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't agree more. Just absolutely, uh, it, it transcends uh, genres and styles and singles, and al- it, it's just you know, it's it's beyond that. It's cultural. It's iconic. Um, speaking of cultural and iconic, uh, we are talking about Deep Purple, so, so let's go back to that album, um, Burn. Coming into that, yeah. uh, getting hired, knowing that you had this this catalog that this sort of, you know, revered catalog that, that, that existed before you, what was that like for you going into it? And was that, was the game plan just to just make another deep purple album or did you come in thinking, okay, we are going to reinvent this band. We are going to reinvent this sound. This oh. is um, talking about coming into those sessions and, and that album. Okay. Good question. Now, you're not as old as I am, but I know you can read this in history books if you wish. Trappies in the spring of 73 were in Texas and the southern parts of America, Atlanta, and down there in New Orleans. We were selling between seven and 10,000 seats a night. We had been doing that for about a year. I had been working with Trappies solidly from 1970 to 73, constantly touring America back to back to back shows, playing at first to five people, you know, up in Long Island, and then finishing up playing to 10,000 people a night in Dallas, Texas. So on the back end of my leaving trapeze, which damn near killed me, I, I, how could I leave a great band like that? And then coming into Deep Purple, um, on the back end of Machine Head, and having a deep friendship, funny enough, you got to believe this, with Richie. Richie and I were very tight when I first joined the band. He gave me a lot of encouragement to to fulfill some wishes. Um, and I went into that arms wide open and ready to go and ready to sing, ready to play bass and ready to, ready to play bass and ready to sing with the next singer coming in who would eventually be my friend David. When we went down to Clearwell Castle, that 13th century castle in Monmouthshire in the United Kingdom, we had no songs. I mean, when in that dungeon, repeat dungeon, in that uh, castle, of course, you know, Richie loves a seance, doesn't he? So all kind of hell was breaking loose, excuse the hell word. We went in there, and again, I say this to you, I've said this to you before, no fear, Mitch, no fear. I'm working with virtuosos. I look at the drums, Ian Pace, I look at the organic organ player, John Lord and Richie Blackmore. In my opinion, in 1973, it was him... Jimmy Page and Tony Iommi and Clapton, that was it, wasn't it? He was up there with them. So I'm thinking, this is a great opportunity for me. I wasn't frightened. I was in the mood to create some new music with these guys. We weren't trying to rewrite Machine Head. We just went in there. We had this one idea of one song we hadn't written called Burn. And because we had that one word, Blackmore wanted to have an album called Burn. We just went in and we thought about it and we just we the album wrote itself. It was pretty pretty remarkable. 
It was remarkable. And, and when you look back and you look at mistreated and might just take your life and burn. And I mean, what are we now? 40, 44 years ago or give right. or take. And and they still sound yeah, yeah. yeah, and they still sound fresh. I mean, when when you or or David Coverdale performs those songs, you go, man, mistreated that. Mm, that's still a great rock song. Um, now before you were talking about you're going to be one of the only ones performing these songs currently. Yeah, has it always struck you as strange this whole boycott of? from the band of playing those songs when you weren't in it? I mean, I, I don't think they've played Burn Live since like 75 or 76. Uh, no, I don't think... God, I, I, said, I know I know everybody's going to hear this. Right. Ian Gillen has... Ian Gillen, I think he, 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 he talks about um, listening to Burn like somebody's fucking his wife or something. He can't listen to Burn or Stormbringer. And I totally kind of get what he's saying, you know. Um, it's something that, you know, when David and I joined the band, it was there was no talk of, of, of Ian and Roger Glover. We, they wanted to build something fresh again, and I think that's why the album was a success. So, again, the no, the no fear factor was very important. And, and, and Ian has said in interviews in the past that it's, it was like, you know, making out with an ex-girlfriend and he didn't want to hear about it, which, which That's is right, which is fair. But also, you know, I, I think it's fair in 1979. I think in 2018, it's like, all right, listen, the fans want to hear it. Let's let's just give them anyway, whatever. Um, let's hey, move. hey, bro, bro, let, let, yeah. let's Mitch. Yeah, I know you were watching 2016 induction. I know you were watching that induction. Yes, in fact, to be quite David honest, I, I, I saw it Sunday David. night. It was on TV up here. Well, bro, no, I want, this is important. So I know, I know you're recording this. David and I thought going into it a month before we were being inducted. David and I thought, hey, maybe Richie will be there, and we can actually just play, just maybe, just play one song, and it could be Burn. And I said to David, I don't think that's going to happen, brother. He said, well, I'm going to call Ian Gillen. I said, well, you go right ahead. And of course that happened. And of course it never happened for David and I to sing. So I know you watched the show last week. We had to, David and I were invited by Paul Schaefer, who led the orchestra with Cheap Trick and, and, and you know, and uh, Chicago and, and my friend Joe Crow. So we got a chance to close the show. Did we feel a bit inhibited that we weren't asked to sing with Deep Purple? I think so. But did we care? I don't really think we did. We just sat at that table. We got our awards. We shook some hands. We went home and we had a bit of a giggle. Um, for me, there's never been a falling out. Uh, it's just two sets of people. Mark two is one thing and Mark three is another, as you well know. I do. And, and, I did watch that. It, it happened to be on whatever HBO Canada or something on Sunday. And uh, I, I always thought it was kind of, I don't want to, what's the word? Is it amusing that you and David were doing Ain't That a Shame? Because when you look back at the whole performance, it was like, yeah, it is sort of a shame that they didn't get to do Burn or Stormbringer or. Well, it, it you is, know. bro. And, you know, you're hitting, on a, you're hitting on a nerve here because, you know, genuinely a lot of people. Uh, fans and industry people were quite surprised that as, as other artists of, of you know, my friends in Guns N' Roses, 
I'm, you know, I'm, as as you know, Mitch, with the Hall of Fame, you, you never know who's going to show up, who's not going to be inducted. Are they going to play this song? You're only allowed a certain amount of time. But I had a feeling that David and I would not be invited to sing with those fellows. It didn't offend me in the slightest because I kind of felt that we weren't going to be, but did it stop us from being inducted? No, it didn't. The fact of the matter is we were asked because I believe we were asked because Byrne did some serious numbers. And I think David and I really helped the cause of Deep Purple Mark III. And uh, I'm very, very grateful. You may be talking to the most grateful man this year because we have been inducted and I have no animosities or I have no resentments. I just carry on doing my business and long may that continue. Yeah, it really, you know, by the way, since we've mentioned David a bunch of times, would you ever consider uh, asking David or going out on a tour with David and, and you know, him doing the, a little bit of the White Snake stuff and then somewhere in between maybe you doing, you know, the Resonate stuff and then coming out and doing a set to get, I mean, is, has that ever been discussed, a possibility of, of both acts on tour together offering a sort of unique package yeah. to fans? Yeah. Um... Um, David and I kind of made a commitment 10 years ago when, before John got sick, uh, I, I, you know, the story, David and, and I and John were talking privately about, Hey, you know, um, we get Richie back and we can actually, maybe we can go out and do Mark three, you know? And, and I don't think you know, the real deal is, is that we were all kind of going, let me call Richie. No, let me call him. No, let me call him. And nobody could get him on the phone. And then, of course, John got sick. And, and then, you know, the rest of the story ended pretty abruptly. Um, when that happened, Mitch, David and I kind of said to each other, there's no way David and I could really do anything unless it was deep purple related because it's a, I guess it's a business opportunity, if you will. And I think that has gone now. Um, David um, is doing other things and he's done his Purple Snake thing. I am now doing what I'm doing with the Glenn Hughes Performance Classic Deep Purple Live. It's not a career retrospective for me. It's not going to be a, a life-ending thing for me. It's just what I'm doing these days. Would Glenn and David ever get together and tour together? Very doubtful. Uh, as I have a commitment to doing things now that are really, really on the front burner, and I will not allow anything to come in between that and what I need to do. Right. Well, okay, so let me get to, to the present day, uh, so to speak. Uh, Resonate came out a couple of years ago, and uh, BCC4 was September of 2007, so almost a year for, for that one. Um, just quickly... Uh, Talk to me about coming back for that album, because in between the interim of that and Afterglow, there had been a lot of stuff said and a lot of headlines. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, first of all, just talk to me about getting back together with those guys and, and getting the album done, because it turned out slamming. I mean, it's, it's a great album, but there was four years there where you went, oh, this is never going to happen. They don't, they don't like each other. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Look, look, Mitch, you know, you know, this is pretty much a Google thing. You can go and Google it. Of course. What happened was that, you know, when I, when I did Afterglow, um, I'm not opening a can of worms here. When I, I think you know that Afterglow was a Glenn Hughes 
I pretty much wrote the album for a Glenn Hughes album. And Kevin Shirley asked me uh, before I finished it if, if we could make a Black Country would have been number three, wouldn't it? I said, well, oh, I love Black Country Community. I love it. But I know Joe was very busy. And I said to Kevin and to Joe, sure, why not? But it would be great. I didn't demand this, Mitch. I said, wouldn't it be great to take this on the road no, maybe do 30 shows, maybe 40 shows, you know, no big deal. And, you know, I said, listen, I got these songs, you know, got this song called Afterglow. It'd be really cool if we did do an album, maybe we could call it Afterglow and Joe and I could complete some songs and make this, let's go make this record, and which we did. And of course, I'm doing, you know, press back in, in September of 2012. And, and the news was that, uh, and this is really sad. The, the news was there was going to be only one show for the album, one show only, and it didn't sit well with me, Mitch. It didn't sit well. Didn't feel right. And let's just say things went a little bit haywire. And that's when we all backed away from the car. We all sort of backed away. Didn't speak for some time. Of course, a year later, Joe and I backed friends again. Jason and I. Jason and I had never fallen out. But it was Mitch, it hit a nerve because it was a difficult thing for me to give up most of the songs on Afterglow to do a Black Country album that was never going to be two. I say that with love and respect because I love Jason Bonham, Joe Bonamassa, and Derek Turinian and Kevin Shirley. They're my family. But damn it, I'm older than these youngsters and I gotta get out and I gotta do what I gotta do and I gotta give my fans as much rock as I can. Yeah, and I agree, and, that, and and that's sort of where the question was going. Though, did it make did it make it more rewarding that you could come into 2017 and say, "Mother, we've got a real BCC album," and I'm glad to call these guys yeah. my brother. Yeah, right. I mean, it was it it made it, it okay. Um, of course, go, the, yeah. Go, go, go ahead. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was, I was just gonna. I was gonna move on to it to resonate. Resonating, of course, came out in uh, 2016. Yeah. Uh, so two years yeah. ago. A great album. You, you've called it heavy, but uh, I've always loved your quote. Not thorns up heavy, but more dark heavy. Um, oh no! Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a great quote. Where do we go from here in terms of Glenn solo? Is there another collection of 10, 12 songs of solo material? Yeah, there, is, there are. There okay. are. Okay. There are. But am I, am I, you're hitting the nerve again. Am I ready to do that? Not yet. And why I, why I don't want to do it. And yet you've got to put your hat on here. How many summers have I got left? How many August the 16th have I got left? It's like, not so much of a business point of view, but I don't have 30 years to do what I need to do. I have to do things that are commissible, uh, that are contracted, and to do things that to play to as many people as humanly possible. Um, do I have songs? Yes, I do. Do I have 10? Yeah. Um, but am I ready to do another album? No, I'm not. Because what I've got going on with this classic Deep Purple Live thing is going to be quite some time before I have any time to to pull back. You know, Joe Satriani, my dear friend, wants to do a vocal album with me, uh, which I would love to do in 2020. Uh, Joe and I would love to do another Black Country Communion album, 
but it's going to have to wait, you know, because we're all, as you know, Mitch, all pretty damn busy. And people have got to understand, I just love Joe. I, I like him as a human being. I think he's one of the greatest guitar players, absolutely the best of his generation. And he's a very dear friend of mine. And we make fantastic music. But in reality, let's be clear, there has to be things that are committable, contracted before I can do anything else again, because I can't waste any more time. Yeah, and, and that's that's. I mean, it's 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 a reality. I mean, you know, we we're 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 getting there. Uh, you know, my birthday's coming up, and I know that I'm feeling it. So, um, and, and I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, I'll I'll end with this because you have, of course, always made new music. I mean, you, you look back from from feel to song in the key of rock, soul mover. Yeah. You could have easily over the years just said, "Listen, I'm just going to go do this Deep Purple thing for 30 years," and and you could have done it successfully that there's no question that it would have been a successful yeah. endeavor why has it always been important to strike out and have a glenn use body of work and not just rely on past laurels uh you know listen truthfully i shouldn't be saying this but i'm gonna tell you the business opportunity for me with this at this time of my life is quite important because a window has opened up for me to do this where I will feel that people are going to, they've already started to show up. Tickets are being sold and people are making plans. And I love that. In general, I'd rather have people remember Glenn as Glenn or think of Glenn as Glenn. But this is a time for me, Mitch. It wasn't that time five years ago, but it is time for me now to put that hat on and go, it's time for me to honor the legacy that I created back with Richie, John and Ian in 1973. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and, and I have to say, it puts a smile on everybody's face. It's, it's just nice. I, you know, when, when and if you come around to Montreal in April, if that is something that might happen, I'll be there. And when I hear those songs, when I hear Burns sung by the real vocalist who sang it, or, you know, a guy who played on it, <laughs> the guy, guy who played on it, I should say. Yeah. It's going to be like, yeah, mm-hmm. and that's the way it should be. Well, the good news, the good news is, the good news is, brother, uh, I'm sure I'll speak to you in the next couple of months. Uh, I'm going to have news that it looks like we will be playing Montreal. I know my, my agent is talking to the Canadian promoter, so it's it's looking very, very. Look, I don't want to go on air and tell you something that's not going to happen, but there's a, a really advanced stage of, of Canadian shows are being booked at this very moment. Great, thank you. And and I know we had half an hour, and I know you've been running late, so we've reached 30 minutes, so I just want to say thank you. Always, always a pleasure, and I definitely look forward to doing this again soon, and I look forward to anything uh, that you're going to be doing, especially musically in the next uh, couple of years, couple of months. Just It's always just yeah. great stuff. It's important that people know that this, that whatever time I have left, and I'm kind of spiritually inclined these days as you can imagine just while I'm in the greatest shape of being in physically and mentally and spiritually I need to be giving back to people that need to hear these songs by one of the guys that created it you know I don't want to be remembered as the guy that oh my god we should have seen him oh we missed it no I'm on the path Mitch let me stay on that path. Let me be focused and let me be in the now and let me be present. Yeah, 
and and you are and hopefully in fact uh, folks in america are going to be seeing this starting at the uh, end of august and they are going to have a great mm-hmm. time thank you sir merci beaucoup yes, as we will. say uh, as we say up here cheers now merci, yes merci bye bye cheers bye 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 you're listening to rock talk with mitch lafon rock talk and a very big thank you to Glenn Hughes. And as always on the show, I like to keep the last interview for something a little bit off the beaten path. And this time it is the horn section, Tower of Power. And of course, they have earned their first number one album 50 years into their career. They had to wait 50 years. And of course, the new album is called Soul Side of Town, and it's debuted atop both the jazz and contemporary jazz albums. And I know what you're thinking. Why is there a jazz guy on a rock show? Well, here's the reason why. Uh, The band leader, Emilio Castillo, and of course, Tower Power, or T.O.P., have played on albums by Exodus. That is right. uh, Thrash metal at its best. Uh, Sammy Hager. They've done some Huey Lewis. Aerosmith. They were on Just Push Play and a whole bunch of other stuff. And Alan, here's here's a fun fact for you. In 1971, they did a three-night stand or a three-night run with Aretha Franklin at the Fillmore West. And so there's two things there that, that, that I need you to comment on or point out. Of course, there's Aretha, but also the Fillmore West, just a magnificent, historic, iconic building, right? I mean, that that's have you ever played there or been there to the Fillmore West? Not played in the Fillmore West. Uh, but played for Bill Graham. And, of course, Bill Graham is significant to Tower of Power because, if I recall correctly, I believe he was the first one to sign them to a contract. Uh, And that's way back in the 60s, Um, 50 years, and you get a number one. 50 Um, years. Hmm. And, you know, in in their own right, I mean, they played on a a lot of albums, Um, just a really excellent horn section, but, you know, they had a gold album in their own right. Um, I think it was either their second or third album. And they had a hit that with something called So Very Hard to Go. Yep. Um, and listening back to that track, it was interesting because it uh, the horn section does not override excessively in there. It's just a very creamy track, very cool R&B. Um, the like of which I'd, I'd love to hear people making more of these days. But uh, um, they were they were a, a smoother version of a Chicago in some ways. Yeah, they really were. And of course, uh, let us not ignore. In fact, let's pay respect and tribute to Aretha Franklin. You are of uh, sort of a an older generation than me. Is that fair to say? Is that nice to say? That's probably nice to say. Oh, I'm probably (laughs) the oldest person in your Rolodex. And I've become convinced that you like to talk to me about records because you're the only person, I'm the only person you know who was alive when they came out. Um, Pretty much. Pretty much. (laughs) No, I kid you. My mom's in my Rolodex and she's 78. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting that you talk about your mom because... Aretha was one of the moments where I could actually connect with my mother on music. And we both absolutely adored Aretha. Um, 
and, and loved her voice and what she sang and what she stood for. And through Aretha, I got a connection with my mother who uh, really wasn't very close to the likes of Led Zeppelin or Deep Purple. But Aretha, she could understand. And I think a lot of people could understand because when you look at the tributes coming in for her, they're coming in from artists that are in the pop world, the jazz world, the metal world. Everybody from every walk of the music industry is paying tribute to Aretha. And, 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 of, course, and of course, as you heard in the interview, uh, Glenn, Glenn Hughes paid tribute to her. So, boy, her, her value to, to American culture and, and to the sort of the, 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 whatever, the zeitgeist of the world cannot be understated. Just absolutely, absolutely. Um, the lady was a tremendous spirit, an incredible force as a singer. But as a person, she was a, a very strong spirit. Um, one of the things that kind of makes me smile, though, is the, is the thought that on a, a lot of her tracks, she recorded down in Muscle Shoals. And you think of Aretha as being essentially um, of the black consciousness. And yet a bunch of old southern rednecks played on some of her greatest hits. They really did. And which, so. which I love, too, because that's bridging. You know, it's, it's like the classic story between uh, um, Dwayne Orman and Wilson Pickett and how Wilson Pickett's version of Hey Jude got to be recorded. Um, those, those old rednecks went down to the diner and Wilson Pickett did not want to deal with the folks in the diner and nor did Dwayne with his long, long hair. So they stayed behind in the studio, and by the time everybody came back from lunch, they'd cooked up this version of, uh, of uh, Hey Jude. And if you've never heard Wilson Pickett doing Hey Jude with Dwayne Orman, that is another must-find. Yeah, I'm go- in fact, I'm, I'll, I'll go check to see if it's on YouTube or one of those places later. Now, just before we get over to Emilio Castillo talking about the Tower of Power, uh, you did mention Led Zeppelin, and today, in fact about a half hour before I got on the phone with you, I was listening to Black Dog, Stairway to Heaven, and Heartbreaker as sung by Lou Graham of Foreigner. And I can finally say I actually liked Led Zeppelin songs. Took a while. Ah. <laughs> but uh, well, but, but I, Lou made them sound right. Well, Lou, again, is one of those, where the hell do you get a voice like that? from people. I mean, just an amazing guy. Um, so it's been a big singer week this week. And yes, a big thank you to Aretha for her spirit. Absolutely. And, and her songs. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, with that, here is from Tower of Power, 50 years into their career, the one, the only, Emilio Castillo. We are speaking with Emilio Castillo of the band Tower of Power. The new album is Soul Side of Town. Emilio, an absolute great pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks, Mitch. Good to talk to you. Good to talk to you. So let's talk about this new album and and putting it together. It is, of course, uh, number one in the charts, at least on the jazz charts, and and some other charts as well, right? Yeah, R&B, hip-hop on uh, Billboard and the independent charts. We're... uh... 50-year overnight success. <laughs> yeah, so so let, let's just quickly talk about putting together this new album and, and the sound of it and the fact that it got to number one and its success, and then we'll look back on the band's history 
and of course celebrating 50 years, which absolutely amazing. I mean, 1968. What a what a great year. Yeah, that was a great time to uh, yeah. come into the music business. And uh, you're right, 50 years is amazing, mostly to me. Yeah. So so talk to me then about about this slow burn here and and this 50 year career. What what keeps you going? For 50 years, I mean, obviously, with every band, there are points where the career is on a high, and then there are points where it's on a low. Um, what what keeps you moving forward and saying, yeah, you know what, it, it, things aren't going good this year, but let's keep pushing forward, and we'll, you know, what what keeps you motivated to to move forward for 50 years? Well, these days, I always tell people, God did it, I just showed up. You know, we definitely had our ups and downs over the years, and. Uh, you know, it's it's a great band. It's a unique band with great musicians. And uh, once I sort of turned my life around in the late 80s, um, I started hiring some really principled people. And uh, we started praying together and things started uh, going better for us. But, uh, you know, we always had a commitment to this type of music. And we always made it exactly the way we wanted it to sound. We didn't chase trends. We tried that a little bit at the end of the 70s. And that didn't work out so well. And uh, so we've stayed true to uh, our sound ever since. And once we did that, things have been kind of moving gradually uphill. We're like the uh, the little engine that could. We just keep on going. So so talk to me about putting together a horn section, because you, you look back to that time, you know, you got the Grateful Dead and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and the Beatles were just finishing and Led Zeppelin was just starting and, and everything was sort of guitar oriented rock. What was sort of the, the the concept behind of well let's do a horn section let's let's not do you know a rock band let's let's get out the trumpets and the, and the clar- not the clarinets but uh, uh, the trombones and and let's put together a horn section. Well, you know, we played rock when I first started to play when I was a teenager around 1965 for about you know two or three years we played rock and roll and uh, and then we learned how to play and I saw this band called the Spiders. They were a local soul band, never became famous or anything, but they were a very tight band and they had a trumpet, a tenor, and an alto. And I had never seen uh, a band play soul music like that, so tight and so well arranged. And I hired a trumpet player the next day. And it happened to be Mick Gillette, who turned out to be a world-class trumpet player over the years. Uh, you know, who knew that I would grow up with such a famous trumpet player, but he was a great player. He he wound up, he came in as a trumpet player, and then he played trombone. And, uh, you know, as soon as I got one more horn in there, I was on alto. I had a tenor player already. Next thing you knew, I hired another horn player, and Ned Doc and got another one. I got a baritone sax, and it just kind of became our sound, you know. But uh, originally, it was just a smaller section. I just really liked the way it sounded, and uh, I was a kid. You know, I didn't think about money or any of those kind of things. Just I like this, so I want more. And uh, next thing I knew, I had five more. And it turned out great. Uh, you are, of course, on tour. You're, you you just played Chicago. You are moving on through until next year into April of 2019, hitting places like Honolulu, uh, Manila, in the Philippines, Japan. And just talk to me about that tour and and. When you bring it to a country like the Philippines or Japan, is it the sort of the same crowd response, or is there some kind of difference in audience response? Well, you know, uh, every sort of continent has its own, uh, you know, uh, sort of signature as a as an audience. In Japan, we have super loyal fans. They're real young, and uh, we, we always laugh because 
we, we play a, a nightclub there called the Blue Note, and we'll do like 12 shows in a week. And uh, they're all sold out, and everybody's standing. And, you know, the Japanese, they don't stand. You know, they, <laughs> they sit there, they're very sort of polite. But when we come, they're standing. And every time a guy takes a solo, they crouch down, you know, as if to give him respect. And when the solo's over, they stand up and cheer, you know, right in the middle of the song, you know. And that's how it is in Tokyo, you know. Uh, in Europe, all through Europe, the crowd is younger. You know, they're like 16 to 22 over there, you know, and uh, I don't know why that is, but we have a younger crowd there. You know, I think the Internet has a lot to do with it. And the fact that we get written about in these musicians magazine, bass player magazine, drum magazines, you know, all the woodwind magazines, etc. And, uh, you know, we pushed the envelope internationally over the last few years. We got down to New Zealand and Australia and you know, Bangkok and Jakarta and, uh, you know, they all got their own spin, you know, but uh, we do real well all over the world. Yeah, you really do. Uh, as a Montrealer, uh, we are very accustomed to the Vanelli family, Gino and Joe, uh, and of course, uh, Ross, but, uh, Joe Vanelli, uh, produced a new album. Talk to me about working with, uh, Joe Vanelli and, and just being part of that Vanelli family clan, if you want, uh, just an incredible talent, right? Giovanelli is uh, married to our business manager, Diane Ricci. And uh, she had been telling me, because I, I had already started the recording. I recorded 17 tracks, just basics, you know, still, still very early in the process. And uh, I was doing it at a studio in Sacramento called The Track Shack. And I was having a hard time getting in there. And, you know, as I say, we tour all the time. So, you know, when I need to get in, if I got home for 10 days, I'd want to go in for five days. If it wasn't available, you know, there's a missed opportunity. And Diane kept telling me, you know, Joe wants you guys to come down and do a few days with him in the studio. And so I took her up on it. And, uh, you know, I'll be honest with you. I didn't know a lot about Joe Penelope. I knew about his brother, Gino. I knew they had a, you know, uh, everybody had a real high respect for their, their records and their musicianship. And I was a fan, you know, of the songs. But, uh, you know, Joe, I knew him uh, socially but I had never worked with him after working with him two or three days, you know, seeing how meticulous he was and how skilled he was uh, technically. And then, you know, also as a musician, he's phenomenal, you know, so he has all these really incredible ideas and he, he sort of eased his way in, you know, he, he didn't want to step on any toes. I was producing it. You know, we, we all know what we want. And so he was just kind of, you know, every so often you say, Hey, you know, what about this? You know, and I just started to notice that, man, he's just really good, you know. And so I came back. He liked it. I liked it. He said, you want to come back? I go, yeah. And so I came back, and we did a few more days. And uh, then then I realized, okay, this guy's just great. The studio is great. The vibe was great. I'm comfortable, you know. And by that point, I realized that the project was too big for me because I was trying to do 25 songs, you know. I was trying to make the best record of my career, do 25 songs and pick the best 14. And uh, he was taking me to the airport and, and I looked at him and I, I said, you know, this is my, this is my vision to, to do 25 songs and pick the best 14. I got to make the best album of my career. We're coming up on the 50th anniversary. It's really important. That's my plan. What do you think about helping me finish it? He said, wow. I said, you know, I'd love to. And that turned into a great relationship. And also, it turned into 28 songs. <laughs> so we actually uh, finished two albums worth. When we took it all to the record company to pick the 14, 
they liked them all and said they wanted to release two albums separately. And uh, we have them all mixed and mastered. And the first one came out in June. The next one will come out, you know, after a year or so. Wow, that's great. And it's great to have uh, that in the can. You know, you do your tour and boom, you can drop another uh, another album on the fans. Um, I do want to look at some of the albums that you've played on that fans may not realize. Because, you know, this is a rock show and there's a lot of rock albums and even heavy metal albums that you've played on. And people go, oh, really? Uh, so I'm going to start off here in uh, the Bay Area with a band that I've always liked. And, and they've done two great albums that had you. Huey uh, Lewis and the News, they did Picture This and the Four album. Um Talk to me about working with Yui, because he, he's got a, a very unique approach to rock and roll. They've always had trumpets and other, you know, instruments like that, instrumentation of that ilk. Um, talk to me about the picture of this album and, and working with Yui Lewis. Well, Huey Lewis sort of came out uh, and got popular right around the time that we were at a really low point in our career. Everybody was referring to us as dinosaurs, and all these new bands were coming out with these weird names like The Knack and The Motels and Devo and all those sort of bands, and everybody was talking about New Wave and Punk Rock, and you know. And I heard about this band called Huey Lewis and the News, and I thought, well, that's a cool name. You know, I liked it. And we were doing a gig for Bill Graham at his nightclub called The Old Waldorf, and we were debuting some new material, and uh, he was there, and he came backstage, and he's he's just gushing all over us, you know. Man, those songs! Where'd you get those songs? You know. So we, we wrote them. You know, we we're always writing songs. And he says, "Wow, man!" He says, "You know, it's just, we love it." He says, "I'm a huge fan." You know. I go, oh, "What's your name?" He says, "Huey." You know. I go, "Huey." I go, "Are you Huey Lewis?" And he says, "Yeah." I go, "You know, I I heard the name of your band. I like the name of your band." He goes, "Oh, thanks, man." He goes, "We're all huge fans of yours." And uh, about uh, within a month or so, we were doing some recording at CBS uh, Studios in San Francisco for somebody. I can't remember who it was, but he came into the studio to say hi. And he said, we have this song and we think it would be perfect with your horns. And I had never heard their band. You know, I just assumed it was like a, a new wave punk rock type of band and i got over there and it was a song called hope you love me like you say you do which to me sounded like a bobby womack song i loved it and we put a horn arrangement to it and uh, it just came out great we also did a song called working for a living and that was more in the, the new wave kind of genre you know but we we spiced it up with our horns and whenever they would come to town we were living in la at the time uh, we would go sit in with them, you know, and uh, they really enjoyed it. And when they hit with Heart of Rock and Roll, uh, he he called me up and said, you know, we'd like you to go on tour. And I said, you know, I can't. I got the band. And he said, well, you know, we got, you know, our, our record's number one. We're going to do this huge tour. We'll pay you really well. And I made a deal with him. I said, you know, if you'll promote Tower of Power at every turn, in every interview, features prominently on stage, nameless by name, and if you allow me to bring Tower Power out to the cities where we're playing to do midnight shows and you and the guys announce it at the arena and come and sit in with us, I'll do it. And he was a man of his word. He agreed to it and he did it. So we'd be playing in New York City, like at Jones Beach or something like that. And he'd say, you know, Tower Power is doing a midnight show at the bottom line and we're all going down to sit in where the club would be besieged with people, you know, and that really helped rejuvenate our career. He mentioned us in every interview and on stage, he mentioned us each individually by name and said, tower power horns, of 
constantly throughout the show, had big features where Doc came down front and our sax player was featured prominently. And he just really uh, helped to promote the band and bring us out of our slump. You know, and I'm thinking back to the days because in 85, 86, I was very much into, or even in 84, you know, Huey Lewis sports and, and working for a living that song. That's probably where I first got to hear your name because I was a Huey Lewis fan and I've known Tower of Power for over 30 years. And I'm pretty sure that it must have been through that promotion and that sort of speaking of you in interviews and on much music and MTV and wherever else, because, uh, you know, that's that. anyway, great news. And, and it's it's a bit of a shame that they can't tour right now because he's got those issues with his hearing and uh, we're going to miss you, right? Um, yeah, I, uh, I sent him an email, you know, and told him I was praying for him. And uh, I also, uh, my, my monitor guy knows those guys really well. He spoke with Billy Gibson, the drummer, and Billy, Billy seemed to report that, you know, it's not as serious as they're making it out to be. So we're hoping he's going to come back. Oh, that would be great. And, and it would be great, of course, to see you and the whole Huey Lewis in the News on tour again of some kind of, you know, configuration. Um, I'm going to run through a few more albums here and then I'm going to ask you some other stuff. But just quickly, uh, rock fans may not know that you were on the Exodus Force of Habit heavy metal album uh, doing the uh, Rolling Stones cover, Bitch. Uh, we don't think of Tower of Power and a horn section as being on a heavy metal album, but what was that like for you? And of course, did you get a chance to work with producer Chris Tangredes? I don't remember, to be real honest. With you. Okay. You know, we, we do a lot of these sessions where, you know, they say, be there at 11. It's a three-hour session. We show up. We got an arrangement because they send it ahead of time, you know. And we go and we do the parts and we leave. So I don't remember if we work with that producer or not. Well, we've done a lot of these heavy metal sessions. We did PIL, we did Poison, uh, you know, over the years. We, we've done every kind of genre you can imagine. We did Pure Prairie League, we've done the Hawkins Family, gospel music. We've done rap with P. Diddy and Pharaoh Munch, and we've done Neil Diamond and Aerosmith. You know, we've done every kind of genre there is. And the reason that uh, we're called to do these sessions is because we know how to write for the artist. We're not there to make the Tower of Power shine. I mean, obviously, we, we want to do a good job. We want people to know that it's us, but we want to make sure that the artist is featured. We're not stepping on any toes. And that's all about the arrangement. We know how to do arrangements that complement the artist, the song, and the record. Yeah, and you do it very well. And then another quickly, uh, another Bay Area artist that you've worked with quite a bit on uh, Red Voodoo, on the Red Album, and Nine on a Ten Scale is, of course, Sammy Hager. Uh, talk to me about that, because you've known him since the Montrose days, and that just goes beyond you appearing on his album. F from what I understand, there's a true friendship there. There's 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 a real camaraderie going on with Sammy. Uh, just talk to me about working with Sammy and just in, Sammy in general. Well, I met Sammy when I did the Warner Brothers Music Show, which was a tour of six bands from Warner Brothers that went all through Europe. I think we did 32 dates. And he was the lead singer for Montrose, you know, and uh, Little Feet was there, the Doobie Brothers in Graham Central Station. And, uh, you know, it was just a great, fun tour to be on. We were very blessed to do it. And uh, Sammy was a real nice guy. You know, Ronnie Montrose was a real nice guy. And uh, we just became fast friends with all those people. And over the years, we kept up those friendships. And then uh, Sammy, I think he was doing a, a King Biscuit Flower Hour, one of those kind of things. And he did a bunch of old soul tunes and we came in and did all the horns, you know, and he was clearly a fan of the band and the horns in particular. And, uh, we did that. And then we did some recording, uh, on his own, you know, 
personal stuff on his records. And, and now, as it turns out, all these years later, we have the same manager, Tom Consolo. So he comes around a lot. You know, he's been around by himself. He's come around with the guys from, uh, what is it, Chicken uh, Chicken Foot. Chicken Foot, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, he's just a good friend. He was at our uh, 50th anniversary celebration, June 1st and 2nd in Oakland. And, uh, you know, he's a great rocker. He's a great friend and a uh, really soulful guy. We love him. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually got to meet uh, your manager, Tom, last week at an REO Speedwagon show because he also manages REO Speedwagon. He does, so, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and by the way, he couldn't have been more uh, courteous and nice and just just absolutely um, terrific meeting him. Um, you have mentioned uh, God and finding yourself and, and getting into these prayer circles before shows. Uh, talk to me about what led you to the path of finding God and find and, and finding that faith, because there was a time where perhaps you were a little wild and crazy and, and things were maybe falling, falling off. You know, the wheels were falling off the cart. Um, talk to me about that, that, that time and, and writing the wrong or if, if, if that's the right word to say, but just getting back on track and, and getting control again. Well, you know, we're from the Bay Area, you know, and we started in 68 and it was all about, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll and, you know, the summer of love and uh, love and peace. And and that was that was happening for two or three years, you know, but by the early 70s, hard narcotics came into the Bay Area, you know, and everybody was doing coke and pretty soon everybody was doing heroin everybody was drinking and we were right in there doing our share and most of your share as well you know and uh you know it's true our career kind of went downhill uh by the end of the 70s and you know there's there's no getting around it that's the reason why you know if you live your life in that manner there's a price to pay and uh you know we we paid it on many levels and one of them ways we paid it is, you know, the career was not going well. And then, you know, uh, I moved to LA, tried to get my career on track and, you know, got down there, tried to stay clean, but basically just sort of changed seats on the Titanic down there, you know, did a lot more cocaine and got a pill addiction, but always drinking booze was a real thing with me. And I had a bad pancreas, you know, and, uh, I tell people all the time, you know, God will get your attention. You know, uh, if you, if, if you keep on doing your program, Pretty soon, God's going to get your attention and bring you to your knees. And that happened for me in 1988. I had been touring with—actually, I was still touring at the time with Huey Lewis in the news. I had plenty of money. You know, I was making good money with them, and Tara Power was doing better, and my songs were doing better. Huey had actually recorded one of my songs, so I was getting some good royalties from that. But, you know, I was using that money in the wrong way, and I was— really severely strung out. It took its toll on my family and I wound up in a treatment facility and, uh, you know, I got sober. I mean, that's, that's the long and the short of it. And once I got sober, I realized that, you know, the way you stay sober is by finding a spiritual path. And I started to pursue that because, you know, by the time I, I was brought to my knees, I was tired of living the way I was living. And so I wanted to stop. That's, that's a big thing is, you know, if, if you want it, you can do it. And, um, within a year I had, uh, doc always says I made his life hell the last year uh, of his using, because, you know, my first year of using, I was always on him. I was worried he was going to die. You know, and he got sober a year later and uh, we started to pray together, you know, and 
couple of the guys in the band. I got a singer that was a Christian. I had a trumpet player that was a Muslim. We were always talking about spiritual things. I had another tenor player that was an atheist, and we'd argue about spiritual matters. And we, you know, the next thing I know, I walked on stage one day and I saw the Muslim and the Christian praying, and they called me over, you know, and we prayed together. And uh, next day, Doc joined us, and pretty soon we were all just praying together. And here's the thing we noticed when we did that, things went better for us, you know, and when we did that on our lives, things went better. So now, you know, me and Doc get together to write, we pray, you know, if we do a horn clinic, the horn section gets together in a little room and we pray, you know, and that's just the way, the way we do it because we've learned that, you know, if we put God first, things go better. And there's no other reason that we've made it 50 years, you know, God got our attention. God did it. I just showed up. That's a, an incredibly compelling story. And uh, I would be remiss here just before we leave, if I didn't ask you about two of my favorite uh, bands, you did of course mention Aerosmith and Poison. You played on Native Tongue, but you also played on Just Push Play by Aerosmith. And, and that studio experience, if I understand, was, was a little bit different for you. You didn't get just to come in and do your thing. There was, they, they had different <laughs> rules, right? Well, they're Aerosmith, so they can do whatever they want, you know. And yeah, and I knew Joey Kramer because he was a fan. He's he is a fan of the band, huge fan of the band, and he's a friend of one of my former drummers, Russ McKinnon. So I knew Joey Kramer, and I had met uh, Stephen Tyler at a studio in Tarzana, California, uh, when we were doing uh, the T.O.P. album, and I knew he was in recovery. So we, you know, we we really hit it off, and you know, I knew a lot of the people that he knew in L.A. in the recovery community so but i remember when i first met steven he told me he said you know we want to get you guys on our record and i said well what's the problem he said well you know we work with this producer uh from canada and he's friends with this particular horn section and he goes, we just feel it would be disrespectful for us to say you know no we want to use these other guys and i said well that's fine i understand that give me a call whenever you can or whenever you want to you know and uh it was about three, four, five years later, uh, that, uh, Joey called me and he, I guess he had been on Steven over and over. We gotta get the tower bar horns. You know, we gotta, you know, and I think they were working with Yeah. They were working with Mark Hudson at the time. They, they had a different producer. And so they called us in, but, uh, you know, I told, I told Joey, send the track to us. So our, our horn arranger can arrange it. He said, Oh no, 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 we got a guy, you know, and I go, you know, Joey, uh, it's really important, the arrangement. That's really what makes us sound the way we do. He goes, no, this guy's really good. You know, he worked with Barbara Streisand. He's a real professional. I said, well, I'm just telling you, you know, we have a certain way of writing. That's what makes it sound the way it does. And he goes, I'm sure it'll be fine, but if it's not, just say so. <laughs> you know? And so we went to the session. It was at Village Recorders in L.A. And the guy, you know, he was a talented guy and a nice guy. But I think he was used to writing different sorts of arrangements. And a lot of people that don't understand uh, how a five-piece soulful horn section works with rock and roll will think, well, we want to, you know, the guitar's going, rah, 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 rah. we'll have to do that, you know. And uh, so we're in there going, rah, 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 rah. and, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. Well, when you go to mix the record for a band like Aerosmith, what are you going to turn up? You know, are you going to turn Joe up on guitar? Or are you going to turn up the horns? Obviously, you got to feature the guitar. And so if you listen to the track, you can hardly hear the horns. 
the approach we take is we, you know, we'll put a bow, you know, right after that guitar lick or a bananet, you know, right between the two guitar licks, you know, so that we pick our shots and we stick out in the mix without stepping on any toes of the artist. And I, I think that was a unfortunate uh, move. And, you know, he told me, say something if it's uh, not working, but you know, I'm in the studio with Aerosmith, the guy standing right there. What am I going to do? You know? So we just played the parts and that was that. But if you listen to the record, you hardly hear the horns and that's unfortunate. Yeah. And of course, if fans want to check that out, the song is a uh, trip hopping the band Tower of Power, 50 Years, A Soul Side of Town is the new album. Do check that out. Emilio, an absolute pleasure to uh, to have you on today. Thank you for, for, for everything. And uh, there you go. Thank you. My pleasure, Mitch. God bless. Bye-bye. Cheers now. Bye-bye. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.